Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Peter 2, 18 to 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enjoy it? But if you suffer for doing good and you enjoy it, this is, a commendable, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to our service, online service. This is how church is going to be for a while. And so we just have to embrace it and see how the Lord uses this new medium for us to continue his work. Now, as we have sung and as we have read, as we have prayed, now it's time for us to listen to God's word preached to us. And before we do that, I'll just ask that we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, you. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for you, Triune God, and how... You are such um, a wonderful fulcrum for us in, the, in, in times that are uncertain like this one. Um, though things may fade, though kingdoms may rise and fall, the word of the Lord will abide forever. And so now, Lord, we ask that you speak to us very clearly and fruitfully um, from this abiding word. Let us meet with Jesus and may you speak to all the circumstances that we are going through. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to continue in our um, series in 1 Peter. You know, um, in John chapter 9, verse 1 to 2, Jesus and his disciples are walking on the road, and they encounter a man, and they ask Jesus this question, because of the condition of the man, why is he suffering? Now, that's a question that many of us ourselves ask when we are going through suffering or we are analyzing somebody else's suffering. Now, they were asking, why is he suffering? Is it because of his sin or is it because of his parents' sin? In other words, with that question, they were trying to ask another question behind it, which is this. Is his suffering, is my suffering objectively and discernibly deserved? Is his suffering and my suffering, is it discernibly and objectively undeserved? In other words, is my suffering just? Is his suffering unjust? You know, when Bernie Madoff 
an American investor, was found to have defrauded people. In fact, he had defrauded people of the tune, up to the tune of $64.8 billion. It's, it's still, I think, the, the, um, the most sizable uh, recorded fraud in history. It um, deprived people of their pensions, of their life savings, of, of all the investments that they had put, uh, uh, that they had used to trust, um, to trust in him. Even led to the commit, uh, committing of suicide of one of his sons. So when he was grand, when he was given a sentence of 150 years in prison, a lot of people looked at it and said, "This is just suffering." On the contrary, though. For many of us who are going through difficult situations, some of us have already lost our jobs right now because of the COVID-19 situation. A lot of us have lost our businesses because our businesses are dependent on face-to-face -face interaction with our customers. For many of us, the difficulty that we are going through at the moment, we look at it and we say, this is unjust suffering. I didn't cause this myself. Now, the concept of suffering and its underlying causes, it's a very complex issue, but it is an issue that I think the Bible speaks clearly to and gives a thorough treatment. Now, we're not going to treat that today because that isn't Peter's concern in the passage that has just been read. And if you want to see a deeper treatment of that, I'd ask you to um, look down. There's a link below in your description. And it links you to a sermon that we preached um, a while ago called Why Suffering? And it's taken from that John chapter 9. But Peter's concern today really isn't about the complex philosophical and theological issues around suffering. No, Peter is actually more focused on trying to help people that are going through unjust suffering. And he wants to help them see how they can deal with it practically. I can say that quite clearly because Peter in verse 19 does refer to unjust suffering. And so what Peter is going to show us today, or Peter is going to show you today, is how to deal practically with suffering. And one of the things he's going to, you're going to see and he's going to show us is that we cannot do that without the lens of the gospel. Peter is going to show that the best way to cope and deal with unjust suffering is to do that through the gospel. And so in this sermon that we have titled, Dealing with Unjust Suffering, Peter is going to show that to us in three different ways. And the three points that we've listed here are the reality of unjust suffering, the reaction to unjust suffering, and the result of unjust suffering. The reality of unjust suffering, the reaction to unjust suffering, and the result of unjust suffering. So let's start with the first point, the reality of unjust suffering. Now, please permit me in the first part of this first point to set some background context. You see, 1 Peter, uh, we look at the different sections. In chapter 1, just the first two verses, you have an open greeting. And then after that, from verse 3 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 10 of chapter 2, Peter sets some theological and doctrinal foundations to reassure the people of who they are in Christ. They are not just exiles and foreigners, but they are God's chosen people. They are his special um, uh, 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 possession. They are people who have been born into a living hope. So he reassures them with that identity before he then moves to the largest section of the book, which is from verse 11 of chapter 2 to verse 11 of chapter 1. 
4. And in this section, what Peter is going to do is he's going to take this identity of them being foreigners and exiles, people who live in a society that does not necessarily follow their own theological beliefs. He's going to take that and then start to give practical advice on how they can live in that society in a way that does not bring disrepute to the faith. Now, the way Peter wants to do that is by maintaining a, um, a, by maintaining a balance between two tensions, or maintaining a tension between two, opposite, uh, two um, opposing extremes. One is that Peter wants them to live in that society without being assimilated. In other words, they must not lose their identity. But at the same time, Peter wants them to live in that society whilst maintaining their identity without being alien from it. It's sort of like, how do you think an Igbo man who was born and raised in the East, how is he going to function well living in Kano? Well, I can tell you, one of the ways he's going to function well is for him to be able to speak Hausa. Now, if he speaks Hausa, most likely the people around there are going to notice that he's an Igbo man. Why? Because he will speak his Hausa with an Igbo accent. Now, notice... That shows that he doesn't lose his identity because the accent reveals that he is an Igbo man, not a Hausa man. But he is able to relate with the society because he is speaking Hausa and not Igbo. And so Peter too is concerned that as much as possible Christians are able to conform with the society's norms. That is, we should speak the language without losing our identity. That is, we should speak with an accent. Now, Peter, last, in our last week's sermon, applied that to how we deal and submit to the governing authorities, the political authorities. And next, he's going to turn his attention to how this works out in what we call the household environment. He gives this household codes from verse 18 that we start, we start with today all the way to verse 7 of chapter 3. You see, in that world, in the Roman world, was, it was still influenced a lot by Greek philosophy and Greek thinking. And they saw that the household unit is actually fundamental to the uh, flourishing of the entire society. And so Peter wants to turn his attention to the master and slave relationship and the husband and wife relationship. Now, the latter will treat in another sermon, but this, um, in this sermon, we are particularly looking at the master-slave relationship. Now, that makes me, I have to say something, which is maybe a little bit of an aside to the message, and particularly maybe if you are somebody who is not a Christian or you're a Christian who is struggling with this, and it's about slavery. Because one thing you'll be able to see is that Peter does not directly address the issue of slavery. He doesn't tell slaves to rebel. He doesn't even say the, um, the system of slavery must be brought down. Now, if you want to listen to how uh, Christians address the issue of systemic sin and a thorough biblical treatment of that, again, you can look down in the description below and it will link you to a, a sermon that we preach which is called Systemic Sin, funny enough, not too long ago. But here is how Peter addresses the issue of the systemic sin of slavery. He follows a pattern that other New Testament writers follow, which is this, that we deal with the systemic issues of sin depending on the seasons that we're in. You are going to address the Christians, but also you are going to address the uh, system, the system itself. 
So for instance, in season one, what does he do? In season one, he focuses on transformation for the Christians, but subversion towards the system. Season one really is a, system, is a season where the Christians are really objectively, and for, for most that we can see, are in a very powerless situation, a very powerless situation. In season two, where you then start to have some of the Christians that are living, the system still remains, but they are living above it. A number of them have been able to come out of it and live above it. What does he do? He focuses on transformation of the Christians and this time cultural ascension. More and more people are heading into the places of power. You can see Christians that are able to live over this thing. And then finally, you get to season three, and in season three, there are more and more Christians now above this. There are more and more Christians in places of power such that um, they are ably and aptly represented in all spheres of society. What does he focus on? They will focus on transformation plus peaceful and legal confrontation. And so what you notice is that the aim is always to transform Christians irrespective of the season. But the approach of dealing with the system changes depending on the season. At some point, it's subversion. At other points, it is as you gain more and more ascendancy, people can see and be inspired about what they can achieve. And then at some point, you gain, you gain quite a number of people represented that you are able to peacefully and legally confront the system. This is what eventually happened when someone like um, 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 uh, what's his name again? I cannot remember. Um, this is good, and we're not going to stop this until I remember. Uh, the English guy, the English guy that fought slavery, uh, I cannot remember. All right, I'll, 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 I'm sure we'll get that for you. Um, Wilberforce, 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 that's the name. Yes, Wilberforce eventually challenged that and they were able to bring down the system of slavery. Fantastic. So, where are Peter's audience there in season one? And so, they are very, very powerless, and um, the, what we find is about 25% of the Roman world are slaves, and most of them will be Christians. And so he's going to focus on transforming these Christians while indirectly subverting the system. And how does he subvert slavery? He does it in two ways in this passage. Notice, one, he addresses the slaves as though they are free moral agents. That is, they have the right to take their own moral decisions to do this or not do that. And the second way is that he assumes that they can choose their own God. This is totally unheard of in that society. If slaves didn't have that right, and yet Peter is addressing them as though they have that right. When you continue this kind of trend over a period of time, it logically um, leads to the bringing down of that system. But then, what does he tell them to do? In verse 18, knowing that they are in season one, Peter tells, he acknowledges their suffering. This is how it is. This is how it is. We are in season one. We are slaves. And you have masters. And you can't rebel. So what does he tell them to do? He acknowledges the reality of their suffering and he tells them to do what? Submit. He tells them to submit. And again, he further acknowledges their difficult situation by telling them to submit to those who are even harsh, even the harsh masters. And many of us know what this is like because we have worked for terrible employers 
And we do so because we have no choice. We don't have any other source of income. We, we would like to leave, but we cannot because the dynamics of that relationship is a season one dynamic. And so how do we react to them? We have to submit. Yes, they are selfish. Yes, they are abusive. Yes, they delay their pay. Yes, they don't deprive you of leave. Yes. And while one isn't saying that you must put your life at risk or you must disobey what God has told you to do, don't put your life at risk because submitting to the harsh master doesn't always mean submitting to their harsh treatment. And maybe some of us are in season two and season three in that relationship. Please make use of all the processes that are there that can help you gain justice. But some of us aren't there. And what does he say you should do? Submit. Don't break your conscience, but you have to submit. The reason is that Peter, at this point, doesn't want Christians to be deemed as rebellious. He doesn't want people to be seen as uh, Christians to be seen as risks to the system. He doesn't want them to be seen as anarchical. Not respecting the structures through which the society works. So while he acknowledges their suffering, he essentially says this. Since we will suffer, there is a way to do it, just suffering, as we see in verse 20. Uh, 20 uh, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong? That's just suffering. And there's a way not to do it, which is unjust suffering. You see it in verse 19. That... For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Of verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable to God. Now, while this may seem crazy, Peter does two subtle things I don't want you to miss. And in those subtle things, he's able to give enormous dignity to the slaves. And it forms the basis upon which he is going to, he is going to instruct them to deal with unjust suffering. And you too as well. One. Notice in the household codes, in the household, the man was on top, the husband was on top, then the wife, and then the children, and then the slaves. In fact, the slaves were on the lowest rung in the society's structure, social structure. And guess who Peter first addresses? The slave. That's amazing. And for those of us who feel like, man, I would never be a CEO, man, I'll never be a manager, middle manager, not even a junior manager. I'm just going to be a bank teller. I'm just going to work this job, um, this one that nobody really um, values in this society. Peter is speaking to you directly. He's speaking to you first. He puts the slaves in a prominent position. And then the second thing, on the basis of what he has just done in the first, is that by doing so, by putting the slaves in the first position, he is reminding all the Christians, as we see in verse 16, that they too are slaves. Fundamentally, we are slaves. God's slaves but slaves nonetheless. And thus, as slaves, our calling is to suffer. Verse 21, to this you were called. Unjust suffering, to this you were called. And so why can he say to this we are called? Why can he say that confidently? Well, that leads me to my next point, the reaction to unjust suffering. You see, Peter can confidently say this is our calling. That is, unjust suffering is our calling. Why? Look at the other part of verse 21. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Now, that begins 
um, a number of verses from here to the end of the passage we read, where Peter is quoting um, uh, stylistically from Isaiah 52 to 53. And he uses that passage to prove that Christ suffered for us. Now, this is a popular passage in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesies about a chosen servant. He does that from chapters 40 to 55. He talks about this chosen servant. Now, in chapter 41, verse 8 to 9, that servant is obviously a corporate. It, it, takes, it, it takes on a corporate uh, dimension. Obviously, the people of Israel. Listen to what it says. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its furthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and, you and have not rejected you. So there, that servant is obviously a corporate, um, 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 uh, a corporate entity, the people of Israel. But when you go to the next chapter in 42, all of a sudden, that servant becomes an individual. Here is my servant, chapter 42, verse 1 to 2. Whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. At that point, if the corporate tells you about the Jews, then the individual is really the Jewish Messiah that we prophesied in other parts of the prophetic writings, the Jewish Messiah. And the Jewish Messiah's role wasn't just for the deliverance of Israel. No, the Jewish Messiah's role was to bring and establish justice for the entire earth and bring light and salvation to even the non-Jews. As we see in some other parts of this, um, in Isaiah, about this servant, he says, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Or, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so this Jewish Messiah is really a savior for the entire world. Now, how he's going to accomplish this justice for the entire earth, how he's going to bring light of the light of salvation to both Jews and non-Jews is then, we see that it culminates in Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way to verse, 15, uh, to verse, 13, uh, verse 12 of 53. And that is where Peter then quotes from. And in this passage in Isaiah 52 to 53, what you find is that this, this servant goes through unjust suffering. He was not suffering for his own sins. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, you know, when we often try to find the underlying cause of unjust suffering, I don't know if you've actually been accused wrongly of something before. When we try to find the underlying cause, we end up getting confused because we can't find it. And when we cannot find it and we are suffering and we are wondering why this is happening to me, we end up being frustrated, confused and frustrated. Frustrated, why? Because we feel like 
How can anyone allow this to happen? So we say something like, life is unfair. And when we say life is unfair, we're almost referring to life as though it is a personal entity. Like life, why did you allow this to happen to me? But what we are really frustrated about is that the one who controls life, whatever controls life, I don't know whether you think it is the universe or it is karma or it is the gods or the ancestors, whatever controls life, it must be so impersonal, i.e., universe and karma, or it is so powerful, i.e. ancestors and the gods, that it is aloof to my suffering. Or else it would not allow this to happen. And so we lash out. And for some of us, this is why we cannot believe in the Christian God. Because you have gone through so much unjust suffering, and you say, how can a good and powerful God allow this to happen? One thing I can say is this, even if he exists, he cannot care. Because he's so powerful, he has never felt suffering. He's so aloof, he's not thinking about me. But guess what? This is where the Christian faith separates itself from all other kinds of faiths and all other systems. Why? Because here, God shows that he cares and understands. Why? Because God, the second person in the Godhead, becomes a human being. And what does he do? He also is treated like an un. Just, uh, an unjustly treated slave. He's the servant who then is suffering for no sin that he committed. Listen to me. Unjust suffering doesn't turn you away from God, but it should turn you to the Christian God. Why? Because you should never hesitate in bringing your cares, your, your feeling of anguish for unjust suffering. You should never hesitate to do that because we can confidently say he understands. He knows. He cares. He has identified with it by becoming a man and being treated, suffering for sins that weren't his own. But it goes one step better. He tells us, not only is it that he can identify with us, he shows us how to react by his example. And in that reaction, he shows us how not to behave and how to behave. First of all, how not to behave. Notice it says in verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. In other words, what does he tell us to do? The first way we shouldn't react is don't revenge. When we have suffered unjustly under the hands of people, our tendency, especially when we are still powerless, against them. Our tendency is to build up resentment against them. How can this person do this? What was the person thinking? This person doesn't value me. This person looks down on me. This person must hate me. And so what happens is that we build up resentment and resentment against them such that A, if we are fed up or B, we enter into the place where we, we are no longer under their power, we revenge. Because as Jesus said, hatred in the heart is really murder when you have the ability to do so. And so we revenge. We take matters into our own hand and then we give them fire for fire. But Jesus was totally against this fire for fire mentality. Because notice, Jesus was actually even more powerful than the people that executed him. Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels against those who were doing 
all manner of things to him for nothing that he committed. And when Jesus was on that cross, as they hurled insults at him, as they forced him to carry his own cross, what did Jesus say? When he's finally about to die in Luke, verse, uh, Luke chapter uh, 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 23, he says this. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He issued no threats. He, he did not insult them back. Instead, Jesus said, forgive them. Because he wasn't hateful, nor was he bitter. On 17th of, of June, 2015, a white supremacist called Dylan Roof he walked into the Mother Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. After the Bible study that they um, conducted on Wednesday, he brought out his .45 caliber Glock handgun. And then, having sat through this midweek Bible study, near the close of the meeting, he brought out that gun, and after praying with them, Ruth shot and killed nine people people he studied the Bible with. He shot and killed nine of them. Now, of course, the police came. Eventually, he was taken into custody. And eventually, when his bond hearing happened in court, while he remained impassive, he heard one by one from the relatives of those he showed no mercy. Nadine Collier, the daughter of a 70-year-old Ethel Lance, who was also killed, said, with her voice breaking in emotion, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never hold her again. But I forgive you. You see, whereas hatred always seeks revenge in the face of unjust suffering, love always produces forgiveness. It's the Jesus' way. When we do not allow bitterness to grow up, as Hebrews 12, 15 tells us, don't allow any root of bitterness to grow up in you. We, we allow love to grow within us. What comes out in the face of unjust suffering like Jesus, is forgiveness, not hatred and resentment, and definitely not fire for fire. Don't revenge. The second thing, as Peter is concerned about transforming the people, is what should we do? Because some people say, but what about justice? How can they go free? You're just saying forgive. Do we just shrug at unjust suffering? And the answer obviously is no. And don't forget again what season that we are talking about. But even in that, no. Christianity does not believe in inequity or misplaced justice. But neither does it believe that you can undo one wrong by bringing another wrong. So God first focuses on the sufferer because he's always about transformation. However, don't mistake the refusal to retaliate 
because of love that's been created in the heart as the only thing that God is trying to do. Jesus shows us that part of the other motivation is rock-solid confidence in the God of justice. Notice the end of verse 23. Instead, he entrusted himself to who? To the one who judges justly or judges righteously. Abraham said, shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? Do righteousness in his just judgment and his justice? He will. And here, what Jesus is trying to show us is, for us, we should never trust ourselves to be able to administer real justice when we are the ones that have been wronged. Why? Because we are still sinful. And so, we don't know the difference between true justice and vengeance. And vengeance itself is never true justice. Second, we are limited in our knowledge. We don't see everything. And so we cannot know the appropriate justice. However, the one who judges rightly, the one who judges justly, has omniscient knowledge. He is not limited in his knowledge. And guess what? He has no sin. So that's why God says in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So our decision to be obedient to God is because we believe in a just God who alone can and will justly bring justice for all the wrongs committed in his world. There are many people who have gone. Think about the dictator in Haiti, um, Papa Doc, uh, um, Papa Doc, what's that, his, his surname again? I can't remember. Today is really just bad, and we are not going to cut this, okay? So, anyway, his first name is Papa Doc, right? slaughtered tens of thousands of his own people. And yet he went scot-free. He died peacefully by, by illness and put his son there. What is going to happen to him? God will bring justice to all harsh masters. But guess what? He's also going to bring justice to all those who out of, a, out of vengeful hearts and hatred revenge against the harshness. That's why it says in verse 18, submit in the reverent fear of God to your masters. That leads me to my third point, the result of unjust suffering. So some of you will be asking me, especially if you don't believe, what evidence do we have that God will right all wrongs? That all the dictators, the evil dictators like Papa Doc Duvalier, Notice how I remember that I just slotted that in. Yes, I remember. Papa Dr. Duvalier, how do you know that God will right the wrong that he did to tens of thousands of people? Because if Jesus is dead, I can see that he can identify. But if he is dead, we're still unsure if God will vindicate him. And thus, all are just sufferers. And this is where you must not miss it. Because though Jesus died, Jesus was vindicated because God raised him from the dead. This is what we call in Christianity the resurrection. And it's not just like Jesus came back to life. No, the vindication of his unjust suffering by God raising him to, uh, from the dead is the reason why he can establish justice on, on the entire earth. Why? Because his resurrection was the catalyst of a process that was bringing about a whole new world where there will be resurrected people and a resurrected earth. In that resurrected earth, in that new kingdom, there will be no injustice. 
question is this, if that is true, and we believe it's true, and we know it is true, if that is true, what then would you do with your unjust suffering? Don't waste it. Because you see, if you notice in verse 24, that there truly isn't ultimately any unjust sufferer except Jesus. Because Jesus went to the cross to bear people's sins. The unjust sufferer in a particular instance isn't just in every instance. So yes, you may have unjustly suffered by your boss, but then you went and you poured that all out on your wife at home by beating her. Yes, you may have been unjustly treated by your boss, but that doesn't mean the last time you went out with your wife, you were very nice with that waiter. There isn't ultimately any unjust sufferer except the one in whom there was no deceit found in his mouth. If God really needs to vindicate us, it will not be by raising us from the dead. It will be ultimately that we will have to be judged ourselves. That is our ultimate vindication. But this is what the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Is that, as you see it in verse 24 again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The gospel is this, that even though our vindication is for us to be judged, Christ was judged for our sins on his cross. His physical wounds ensured the healing, the healing of our self-inflicted spiritual wounds eternally. So let your just suffering not make you just look at those who are treating you badly. Let your unjust suffering lead you to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ so that you can return back to God. Don't waste your suffering. He says, that's the only way? Well, that is the first and most important way. But there are other ways for you not to waste your unjust suffering. Here's a, a other, two other ways. Unjust suffering can lead us to a greater consciousness of God and receive more of God's grace. Look at verse 19. When he says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. What does that mean? There are many of us waiting. We are waiting to be nearer to God once he delivers us from our suffering. But don't you understand that the suffering is precisely what God has allowed so that our dead consciousness of him can be reawakened. Don't waste your suffering. And when verse 20 says this, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. The word commendable there is charis, which we also understand as grace. So it's not just saying that God approves of it when you, when you suffer in the right way and follow Jesus' behavior. It's also saying that God gives grace for you to endure it. In other words, on just suffering, Jesus' way is the sound of God's megaphone to make us more aware of him. And so that when we are more aware of him, we can go to his presence and receive the strength from him to do it Jesus' way. Don't waste your suffering. 
You see, I have not so many close friends. I have a lot of friends, but not so many close friends. When I think of some of my closest friends, at least here in Nigeria, um, some of the Nigerian friends, Bolaji and Shikel Shinuga, Yemi and Feyo Shinubi, Francis Chibo, Moses Kesman, when I think about those friends of mine, Femi Akiwari, it's not really, and when I think about the memories that we've had, I don't always remember the laughs and the presence. And as good as those laughs and presents are, I don't always remember that. I tell you the things I never forget. I never forget how close they were to me in my lowest moment, my moment of greatest suffering. I remember how they were there. They were there. They were not aloof. They were there with me. I remember how when they were there with me, they were encouraging me. They were speaking tenderly to me. And in that encouragement, that presence, that prayer, that speaking tenderly to me, you know what I received? I received energy. I received a kind of grace to continue. And many of us know exactly what I'm talking about. That is why that friend you haven't spoken to in three years, you still have a special bond with them. Not because of the many joys you shared, but because of the trials and how they were with you in those trials. Well, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in God. He's always near us when we are suffering. And that's why he's saying, don't waste this suffering. Let the, cons- let, the, the, let the unjust suffering bring about a consciousness of God so that we can enter into his presence and receive his grace. Remember the Isaiah 41? And when it is speaking to the corporate servant, uh, the corporate servant, now that corporate servant is us. We are the new Israel. And listen to what God says. He says this to us. And I want to say this to you in any form of unjust suffering. By the word of the Lord. This is what he says. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. By the word of the Lord, I want to say this to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged. Do not be in despair. If you confess your sins and come through Jesus, then this God is your God. And your God is here to strengthen you. Your God is here to uphold you. Your God is here to give you grace. Your God is here to help you. So don't waste your suffering. Use it to get awakened to God and also to receive his grace as we wait for a promise of his justice. Let us pray. for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos